And it's time to go spooky live. Spooky South Coast coming at you as we do every Saturday night. Time to talk about the paranormal. And tonight we'll be talking to one of my favorite guests of all time, that being our Gary Patterson. And he'll be joining us coming up in just a bit. Special guest host tonight will be Chris Balzano. And we are ready. We're ready to get crazy here on Spooky South Coast episode 490. We're almost just 10 away from the big milestone. I think we'll make it, maybe. But anyway, episode 490 starts right now. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. We're kicking it old school here. Uh, you know, that's the way we used to do things. For those of you who are new to the show, it started off with just Matt Costa and I. Two boys in a dream. And that dream turned into a nightmare once they let us actually come in here and touch things. But that's all right, because we'll we'll figure it out as we go along, as we have for 11 years now. I'm just getting back from Headlocks for Haley, which was a fundraiser put on by House of Bricks Wrestling, so I apologize for my voice. It's, uh, it's a little shredded from some of the yelling that I was doing, but that's all right because we're going to bring in Chris Balzano as our guest co-host for this evening, and let me make sure that I have the YouTube volume down so we don't get any feedback loop here. All right, Chris, are you with us? Chris says he hears nothing but static. We're in we're an in internet computer there. We're, we'll we'll figure it out as we go along. Uh, Chris, you could always uh, how about that, Chris? Can you hear us now? Maybe that's better. Well, we'll figure it out. We got a couple of minutes before we before we join up with our Gary Patterson, our guest for tonight. Uh, I do want to let everybody know about something that's coming up here on the South Coast. If you're interested in some of the topics that we cover here on the show. If you are interested in just some of the folklore stories that are out there, and, and some of, you know, we talk about a lot of things from different perspectives here, but I'm pretty excited about this event that's coming up March 25th. It's, uh, it's happening next Saturday. It's happening in Wareham at Town Plaza Suites by Marriott. It's being hosted by the Marriott Institute. They're organizing what's called Living in Two Worlds as part of their 2017 Connector Series, and they're going to have a couple of very interesting guests. They're going to have Lorna Byrne and Mark Booth to present this presentation called Living in Two Worlds. Renowned Irish mystic Lorna Byrne and English author and publisher Mark Booth are joining forces. Uh, together they will explore the intertwining roles of the feminine and masculine in mythology and alchemy. They'll also excuse me, discuss Lorna's angelic visions, offer spiritual guidance, and they'll field your questions as well. So they do have tickets available for this if you want to check out the Marion Institute's website, and you can get to that by going to, if I want to make sure I give it to you right, see when you're coming right in, that's that's what happens, marioninstitute.org is the website, M-A-R-I-O-N, marioninstitute.org is the number to, is the website to go and check it out to be able to get your tickets, I think we got Chris on there now, are you there Chris? 
Uh, yes, I am. All Good right. evening. How's it going? It just took us a couple seconds. Actually, Matt figured it out. I'm not taking any credit for it. He's the one that always solves the problems. No, it was crazy. It was like hearing voices from the other side because it was like all staticky in your voice pattern, but I couldn't hear anything. That's all right. That's Other than a low hum. You're better off if you can't hear me. <clears throat> well, that's what I try to do, but sometimes I just can't block you out. Well, we do have some uh, some audio from one of the guests that's coming to the Marion Institute, something that he sent our way uh, and that we wanted to kind of feature, and I'm going to use this opportunity to, to get Gary on the phone, too. So I just got to see if I can get this file to open. Again, this is something that I would have done if I had thought enough to set everything up ahead of time. Instead of just running over here from wrestling. How's uh, how's the Tripping on Legends project going, Chris? It's going really well. Um, you know, we had a, a trip last weekend, which was really successful, uh, which produced some pretty amazing moments uh, before and after and during. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we're just looking to get that information and get those episodes out to people. So we're trying to cut them as much as we possibly can. All right. And people can check that out where? Uh, the best place to go is, uh, you know, just Tripping on Legends, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we've got YouTube set up, so you can go to Tripping on Legends. Uh, once you get into YouTube, just type it in and uh, you'll be there. Or um, uh, trippingonlegends.wordpress.com is kind of where we're doing our uh, our main blogging out of. And I'm trying to post as much stuff as I can on Spooky South Coast. So if you see us on Spooky South Coast, you know, feel free to click in, shoot us a message, tell us what you think of the show. Absolutely. All right, well, what we're going to do is, uh, Chris, just to let you know, your mic will be hot this whole time for me to play this. It's just the way that it goes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to play this little uh, clip that Mark Booth sent over for us to uh, hear all about the presentation, The Living in Two Worlds, that people can check out next Saturday. Hello, my name is Mark Booth author of the New York Times bestseller, The Secret History of the World. Anne Rice says, Ever read Mark Booth's The Secret History of the World? I am reading it with great interest, finding it maddening, challenging, provoking, and inspiring. Beautifully written, this book has my mind on fire with argument and wonder. And that's exactly the atmosphere I want to try to create on March the 25th at the Marin Institute as part of the Connector series. It's an all-day event called Living in Two Worlds, and that's both the spiritual and material worlds and the feminine and masculine worlds. This year, I'm bringing my friend, the Irish mystic, Lorna Byrne. In The Secret History of the World, I reveal the beliefs and sacred practices of secret societies, like the Knights Templar and the Rosicrucians, and show their influence on history. But the thing about these societies, who cultivate mystical states using spiritual exercises, is that they are all brotherhoods. They are very masculine. And in my books I also write about another tradition that is equally important, which is the tradition of the lone mystics, people who don't have to cultivate mystical states because they are born like that. And these lone mystics are mostly women. For example, Hildegard of Bingham and Bernadette of Lourdes. Lorna Byrne is like these mystics from history in some ways, and I'm going to talk about how her mystic abilities are like theirs, but she is also different 
in one way. She doesn't have to strive to see angels and spirits occasionally. She doesn't even see them regularly. She sees them all the time, all her waking hours. In fact, she can't turn it off. Imagine you could sit in the room with one of the great mystics of the past, with Hildegard or Catherine of Siena or Rudolf Steiner, and imagine you could ask them anything you liked about your own life or the life of the world or the world beyond. Well, that's what I'm offering you, care of the Marin Institute, on the 25th of March. I've said before that esoteric thinking is thinking out of the box if the box is materialism. Be there or be square. I hope to see some old friends and make some new ones. Thank you for listening. All right, and that is Mark Booth. He will be presenting Living Two Worlds along with Lorna Byrne coming up next Saturday at the Town Suites, uh, Town Place Suites in, Mar- in Wareham at the Wareham Marriott. It's that new hotel that's been built in, in Wareham. If you want to check it out, you can go to marioninstitute.org, M-A-R-I-O-N institute.org, to be able to... You can get your tickets there, but you can learn so much more about what the Marion Institute is all about, too. And if you're a local person, if you're somebody from this area, you want to check out some of the different things that they have, because this is a, a place where the kind of thinking that we do on Spooky South Coast is what they're all about there. You know, it's thinking outside the box, thinking about these different things, and putting on events like Living in Two Worlds, which, by the way, if you want to get involved, the general admission tickets, they are $100 each, and they are available, again, on the Marion Institute's website, if you want to find us. So we just want to let everybody know about that because it's something different that's happening in this area. And it's not often that you have you know, world-respected uh, authorities such as Lorna Byrne and Mark Booth coming to this area. I'm kind of excited, Chris, that it's actually in my own, own town. I, just, I don't know if I'll be able to make it out there to check it out because there's so much stuff going on. I know we tried to get them on the show so they could kind of promote it and kind of tell us a little bit more about what they were going to be doing. So we weren't able to get them on, but at least we were able to tell the people about it. Right, and, and that was the issue is because they're so busy and they're actually presenting this in a number of different places that it seems like they're always traveling, so it's very hard to tie them down. So Mark Booth was nice enough to send us that audio uh, to be able to get it so that we could actually you know, at least hear a little bit about it from him instead of just you know me telling you about it. So, And anybody that goes to it that wants to check back and give us a report of how it goes, uh, we'd certainly welcome that. All right, well, Chris, it's we've been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> it's true. This is it's like... True. This is like, you know, when a baseball player goes to Cooperstown and gets to meet, you know, their, their boyhood idol there, you know, giving a talk. Or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if you're a wrestling fan like me, this is like getting to hang out with, uh, with Hulk Hogan. And it's not just because of the mustache. <laughs> I, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's like hanging out with Hulk Hogan, but he's not Hulk Hogan. He's just kind of, um, you know, himself. And he's sitting with you, but he's normal, not like you know not like he normally is. Well, I, and I, I spent he's able day, to just tell you stories about what happens backstage. I spent a day with Hulk Hogan once, and he—that's what he's like. <laughs> so it's really not all that different. But uh, we are very happy to welcome back one of our favorite Spooky South Coast guests of all time. Uh, if you've never heard any of our shows with him before, I know you'll be immediately downloading his past appearances with us uh, immediately following this show. But well, we welcome back to the Spooky South Coast Airwaves, the one, the only, our Gary Patterson. Good evening, Gary. How are you? Hey, guys. How are you doing? We are spooktacular. Excellent. So great to talk Excellent. to you again. Oh, it's great to talk to you guys. And 
as we said, you know, we we've had you on the past and uh, on in the past, and you are my favorite all time guest. And I just I, <laughs> I I know because you know you're a very unassuming guy. You're very you know you're somebody who's always remained humble, but you are the guy that tells the coolest stories on the show. So you know, even though. We, we've been friends with you for a long time now. We're going to geek out a little bit tonight, Gary. <laughs> well, that's great. It's always good to be with you guys. Always have a good time. And I, you know, when I found out that Chris had, had booked you to come back on with the show, you know, I get all get all excited, and I should have known that the world was going to throw us a curveball because what <laughs> should be a happy occasion for us, all of a sudden we find out a few hours ago, as we're talking about rock and roll tonight, a rock icon passed away. That would be Chuck Berry passing away it was 90 years old 90 years old i mm-hmm. mean you know normally for me i'm the guy who came up with a curse of 27 so you know when you think of a lot of rock stars who die at the age of 27 and how young they are it's a double tragedy the thing with chuck berry is when he died today i just felt really bummed out because you know all the songs i grew up listening to it learning how to play johnny be good roll over Beethoven on the guitar, and, you know, now he's gone. But, you know, I can look and I can say, well, you know, at least he had a long life. I mean, he was 90 years old. And like Bob Seger said, all of Chuck's children are out filling his licks. And they're always going to be doing that. Because when you take a look at the icons of rock and roll, who do you have? You have Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins go in with Johnny Cash, but you've got those, and very few of them are left. But, you know, just the, the the basis foundation of rock and roll was established there, the rhythm patterns on the electric guitar. And I don't think rock and roll would have ever been what it is if it wasn't for Chuck Berry. I know that, look at the influences with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I mean, everybody borrowed Chuck's licks. And, and you're going to hear Chuck Berry's influence forever because everybody that he influenced becomes the next generation of what influences other people. And so there's never going to be a point where Chuck Berry's sound doesn't have an influence in the music that's being made. I mean, I was listening to Metallica earlier, and you know you can hear the influences there directly of, of Chuck Berry. I mean, it's just it's amazing that uh, he's somebody who... I don't want to say has kind of fallen behind in legend status for a lot of people, but it seems like the younger generation aren't familiar with his work. You know, they know the names of Buddy Holly, and, and they know some of these uh, people from that era, but but Chuck Berry just... It, I, I announced it to some people at the wrestling event that I was at, and most people said either who or, oh, I didn't even know he was still alive. So... <laughs> yeah, sad, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and uh, one of our, our longtime listeners and uh, in, in a, in a radio show host himself, uh, Michael Johnson, you know, old hip, um, we've been on his oh, show yeah. a few times, um, messaged me about um, the whole connection between the 27 Club and Chuck Berry. Um, and so I just kind of want to, <laughs> I know it's like taking opposite that. ends of the spectrum, you know, die young and leave a good looking corpse and, and, and dying at 90, but... Um, Today's the 18th, 1 plus 8 equals 9, Chuck Berry was 90, 9 plus 0 equals 9, and he was pronounced that at 126. So yeah. 1 plus 2 plus 6 equals 9, so there we have our three nines at equal 27. So I don't know if it's the universe telling us something or whatever. That sounds like my Facebook post. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Did he get it from you? <laughs> yeah. 
But, I mean, that's okay. I mean, I put it there just because I know that there are a lot of people who really enjoy the macabre, and when they when they see this, I mean, even with Chuck being 90 years old, I mean, we take a look at 2016, look how many icons we lost in that year. Mm. Well, you take two plus one plus six, it equals nine. And, uh, you know, I've always been amazed ever since John Lennon followed the numeral nine so strongly in his life, just how that goes. Now, whether if nine is the most powerful number in numerology because every single digit multiplied by itself will equal nine, or I'm sorry, single digit multiplied by nine. You can go nine plus one is nine, nine times nine is 81, but they'll always equal nine. And that's where the 27 thing comes in. So when that happens, the first thing I do is I sit there and I think, is there a parallel? And also think of this. He died on the 18th. I don't know if you said that, but 1 plus 8 is 9. And, you know, this is Chuck Berry, a legend. And he's not a member of the 27 Club, but still the numeral 9 seems to have its sway from 2016 to Chuck Berry. And, you know, what's funny about it, too, is, and for those who are unfamiliar, Gary, just give them an idea of what the 27 Club is. When I wrote my second book, which was Hellhounds on Their Trail, I started with, at that time, a pretty obscure blues musician whose name was Robert Johnson. And I got into him mainly for two reasons. I knew that Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and Keith Richards really loved his playing, but they were turned on to him about the story. And, of course, the story of the legend is that he sold his soul to the devil at a crossroads right outside Clarksdale, Mississippi, so that he could play the blues and have all this fame. Well, after I wrote the chapter on Johnson, which is also on Take a Walk on the Dark Side, he, uh, he died at 27. So I had a list of artists I wanted to find some strange coincidences I could write about, and of course that was Brian Jones and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, and yes, I was going through the list, Kurt Cobain, I noticed that they'd all died at 27. So there were over 40 rock stars who passed away at that age, and so maybe something was unleashed at that crossroads, but whatever, whatever it was, you know, it seems like it still pays dividends because I was on my way to Florida when Amy Winehouse died, and on my way, my phone rang. I bet I had 50 interviews within the next day. <laughs> we were one of them, yeah. yeah. you guys, of course, man. I always put you at the top. <laughs> and, uh, I always. And then they wanted to know about the, the 27 Club. And it's really odd because just a few minutes after Chuck Berry died, I get a request for an interview, a television interview on Scott from Istanbul, Turkey, you know? And I'm sitting there going, wow, you know? I mean, it's kind of amazing how important rock and roll is, or at least they're going to talk to me about Chuck Berry tomorrow, I'm sure. But, you know, just all of this, the storylines, everything else with it is fascinating. So at 27, I always tell everybody, if you're a rock star at 27, snake. Stay out of small planes and don't take your <laughs> guitar with you into the bathtub. Anything like that that can uh, end your career. The best thing you do is stay home and wait till you're 28. 
<laughs> well, you and, know, and well, hey, some of these folks who died at 27 were just days away from being 28. Yeah, I know. And, you know, one of the things I did is when I did this is I didn't want to go into, like, Paula's dead rumors and say, well, you know, actually he was in his 27th year of life. Or, you know, because if I included 26, I could have had 10 or 15 more. And Or if I went to 28 and said he just left 27. And, uh, you know, so you talk to people like Otis Redding, Graham Parsons, and all that. So I kept it straight to 27 because, to me, I thought it was interesting. And I read an article in BMI magazine where John Mayer was asked what was his greatest contribution and, and his, you know, the, his greatest, you know, contribution that he had made, his greatest input, I guess, as an artist. And he said, well, I made it past 27. Right. And so, I was going to say that. It, it's, it's something that even rock stars and the outside media have referenced. It's not just a, a, a quirky little thing, but it's something that's actually in the back of the minds of musicians and actors who are growing up. And, and as soon as it comes out, it's almost like, when someone young dies, people automatically look at the age to see whether they were 27 or not. I mean, it's become that big. They do. They do. And actually, if someone dies who's pretty young, what goes through my mind is, oh, my gosh, don't let him be 27. You know? <laughs> and uh, it, it just sort of goes through it. But, you know, it's, it's just really interesting how that is. And whether you believe in numerology or astrology or anything along those lines that sort of gives some sort of semblance to it because, I mean, I've talked to people who are numerologists who will go through great details with it. And, you know, like, we're born at nine months from my mother's womb. I mean, we've got all of this in there. And in reincarnation, Ray Manzarek was telling me that, uh, you know, that's when you leave this incantation at nine. And uh, so there are a lot of people who take it and they move it into the paranormal, move it into some of the other aspects of, uh, you know, uh, paranormal sciences, I guess you'd say, and especially like astrology and numerology. But to me, it's an interesting thing. And in 2016, I'm not sure of, of any of the rock icons who passed away in that year who were 27, but I've never seen a year in which you would lose the heavyweights like a David Boy. You know, I mean, my gosh, you know, that, that was just incredible. One year, the strange thing that I picked up on was we had three artists who died, and they died in alphabetical order. How nice was that? You know, and I thought, this is strange, you know, because their last name started with a P. I think the first one was Gene Pitney. And then one of the Pointer Sisters, which would be P.O., and the last one was Billy Preston. And it was like one, two, three. Mm. And being a rock historian, I'm saying, hmm, my name starts with a P, too, so I'm glad they went away from P.A. and went to P.I. But, you know, I was thinking, what would be the odds that you had three rock stars, three people, great songwriters, great artists, who passed away all within a few months of each other, and in perfect alphabetical order. Now, that's strange. Well, and what's even funnier is that, you know, we look at 2016, and everybody complained about how, you know, 2016 was taking so many great icons, and I think part of that is, mm -hmm. you know, the younger generation was losing some of their idols, you know. the So it wasn't 
like it was, you know, our parents' generation was losing people, and you expect to see that happen. You expect to see people pass away in their 80s and 90s. But we were losing people that were relatively young and, and, and people who still had a lot to contribute. And what's interesting about that is they were, you know, like with Chuck Berry, somebody who has become, I don't want to have to use the word obscure, but it's become that way for a lot of people. It's a shame. Uh But we were seeing people who were a lot more prominent, you know, to see Prince go, to see David Bowie go, to see people who were in everybody's iPod was, I I don't think I've ever seen a year like that with an impact like that. No, no, I've I've not seen one either. And uh, to think about losing Prince, uh, David Bowie, you know, going through the list, Glenn Fry, and then you had two members of Emerson Lake and Palmer, I think. I don't know if Greg Lake died in 2016 or was it earlier this year, but, you know, you had Keith Emerson, and, you know, you're just sitting there thinking, you know, these guys were, were some great icons. And, of course, you know, when you get to be in your 80s and your 90s, you know, you're normally thinking, well, you know, it's, it's about your time. It's not anything that's going to make you stay up at night or, or make you ponder what metaphysical issue it is that's going to take you from us because it's normally expected. You know, like Chuck Berry, 90 years old. Maybe maybe just one of the greatest accomplishments was he was married to the same woman for 68 years. Wow. I wonder if we go back and we look at other years that, that have that that 9 or that uh, 27 connection, whether we're going to see the same kind of uh, body count, to use an insensitive term. Looks like we started something. That'll be kind of interesting to see. I know that, you know, I just know that 2016 was a terrible year. And if you throw in not just musicians, but you throw in some of the other icons, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking one of the most interesting pictures I saw is the one where they did a sort of a parody of the Sgt. Pepper cover. Did you see that? With all the artists who died in 2016? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, man. And I was thinking, sort of puts it in perspective when you see them all standing there next to each other. And uh, yeah, I hope 2017 is not as bad. And by losing Chuck Berry today, you know, it's like, it's like with me with John Lennon. When John Lennon was murdered in 1980, I grew up with the Beatles. And, you know, rock and roll is so subjective. You know, some people think the Beatles are the greatest rock band of all time, or the Rolling Stones, or Led Zeppelin. Everybody's got their arguments that they can make for it. But to me, growing up with the Beatles, I never knew John Lennon. But when he died, it felt like I'd lost one of my best friends. I'd never been been as stunned as when John Lennon died. I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what I was doing, and I know it took me at least a week before I could even listen to a Beatles song. And when all that happens, you know, it sort of just really has a massive impact. And, of course, he was 40 years old in 1980. So, you know, you're thinking about he'd been out of it. He was watching the wheels go round and round. You know, it wasn't somewhere in New York City, John Lennon. And uh, and he's taken. And that was a major, major blow for me. And today, I had the same semblance of it with Chuck Berry, because all I can do today is listen to uh, Johnny B. Good and Roll Over Beethoven and, and some of his greatest hits, because the guitar the guitar licks are signatures. And as you were talking earlier, you have a lot of 
younger guitarists who really get into it and they don't know who Chuck is. They recognize the licks. I remember reading an interview with Eddie Van Halen when they asked Van Halen what was his favorite guitar solo. So he takes out his guitar and he plays Crossroads by Eric Clapton. Plays it note for note to solo. And when they told Clapton that, you know, that he was his favorite guitarist and that he loved Crossroads, and he played it note for note, Eric Clapton says, hmm, I don't hear any of me in his playing. And, you know, for the artists who come along, rock and roll is where you take it, you steal it, <laughs> you add something to <laughs> right. it to make it original, and you take it as far as you can, you set it down, and wait for somebody else to come pick it up. And with the Beatles, you know, after their recordings. I mean, I'm still waiting for somebody to come out with a rubber sole, a revolver, and an Abbey Road, you know? Just incredibly produced songs and incredible albums that can sort of pick this mantle up and take it further. And uh, when I think about Sgt. Pepper's being cut on a four-track tape recorder and the Watt album and Abbey Road being cut on eight tracks. And today we have digital tracks. You can have hundreds of tracks. Mm-hmm. But nobody has ever duplicated the sound. And imagine what so, they could do today, you know, if they had that type of... Uh, although I, I, I almost think that that would be... You know, that w- it was the challenge of it. It was the challenge of what they did and what George Martin was able to do with them that led to that. It was, it was like, wh- how can we expand four tracks? How can we make four tracks sound like there's 100 people in the studio with us? Yeah, and you understand that what you have to do is you have to keep mixing them down. You've got to keep ping-ponging them down to another track so you only get one mix with it, or you're going to run it. And, you know, here they are mixing tracks down, and, you know, with analog tape, you have more noise than you do with digital. But yet, it's so pristine. And to me, when I listen to something by the Beatles, even whether it's their first album, it doesn't sound dated as much as some of the other stuff I listen to. I mean, it still sounds fresh, the vocals. I mean, the vocals are unbelievable. And if you ever had an opportunity to hear the anthology tapes or some of the bootlegs that came out with just the vocals, those three vocal harmonies are incredible. Uh, I mean... It was, um, I I think it was the whole uh, second side of Abbey Road that I heard the vocals only for, and it was just, it blew me away. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that you had those three guys with so much talent from Liverpool and who were very heavily influenced by American rock and roll. Now, you know, one thing, there's a lot of people who like to criticize. I mean, I wish I had a nickel for everybody who told me how many black artists Elvis Presley ripped off. Well, you know, Elvis Presley loved music that was R&B. When he was young, he went out, he sat in black churches, he went to black nightclubs because he loved the music. And you have to realize that when he recorded and put it out, that a lot of people discovered black artists. And when the Rolling Stones came over, one of the first places they wanted to see was Chess Records. And when they walked in, their hero was Muddy Waters, and Muddy Waters was standing on a stepladder painting the ceiling at Chess Records, and they couldn't understand why he was there. They thought it must be his hobby. They didn't know that black music could not be played on white radio stations. 
So what do they do? They take Alan Wolf, they take Muddy Waters to London and do the sessions with them and get their music on radio. So, you know, to think that American rock and roll, like fabulous, fabulous black artist, was reinvented with British accents brought over to introduce it to a group of people who were growing up at the time. I'd never heard of Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf. The name sounded cool, but, you know, just the idea that the British invasion launched American artists to American teenagers, so we understood where rock and roll came from. When the Rolling Stones played the Ed Sullivan show and they did Little Red Rooster, we thought they'd written a song. Mm. Well, we have about uh, two minutes here before we're going to take a break, but I just I just want to get your opinion on this, Gary, because you know just talking about Chuck Berry, you mentioned all the great songs, the legendary hits he had, one number one in that whole career, and it was a novelty record. My ding-a-ling. Yeah. Kind of sad, isn't it? It just goes to show you we love pee-pee jokes in America. <laughs> we do, but you also got to remember that rock and roll, the hits, are made by 12-year-old girls. you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Because when the records went on sale, you had a bunch of 12-year-old girls who'd go out and buy the records and put them up there. That's why Atlantic Records realized that at the end of World War II, and teenagers had allowances that was known as disposable income, they would go to the record stores and they'd buy songs like The Coaster. Uh, some of the songs that created the Brill Building. And what happened was that those were the hits. So they stopped making, uh, well, thank God they stopped doing How Much Is That Doggy in the Window and instead doing Maybelline. But the whole thing is it's sold. And it's kind of a shame that, you know, you think about Johnny B. Good, you think about Roll Over Beethoven. You know, I mean, the very first song the Beatles ever played at their first concert in the United States the opening song was Roll Over Beethoven, sung by George Harrison. And I don't think uh, the Beatles, I don't think any of them ever covered my ding-a-ling. But <laughs> that's, then, I don't know of anyone who's done it. Would, would have been the fun. one thing, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, said, I said it would have been fun to hear them try. Um, we are up against the break for the news, but when we come back on the other side, we want to talk more with our guest, our Gary Patterson. We're going to talk about cemetery connections and death predictions with Gary tonight. And you can call in with any questions that you have at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Lots of great people and great conversation going on in the chat room, which you can get to by going to SpookySouthCoast.com or by downloading the Spooky South Coast app for your Apple device or for your Android device. And you can join in all the fun there. You can watch the show, you can listen to the show, and you can interact with everybody Right there. You can also do it on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive as well. We'll take a break for the news. We'll be right back.
South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, talking about the paranormal, as we do each and every Saturday night. And uh, co-hosting with us tonight, we have Chris Balzano. Chris, thank you for co-hosting with us tonight. No, thank you. I mean, I was, uh, um, you know, I was, we were talking about the legend tripping earlier. Um, I had contacted um, um, Gary to ask him a few questions about uh, uh, the an Almond Brothers uh, legend that we wanted to trip uh, this summer when we were on our road trip. And I wasn't sure how I'd be received, and it was like it was like putting on an old glove, <laughs> talking to him like back and forth via text. I mean, he's just such a wealth of information that I'm glad I can just be involved. Well, it's funny because I asked you if you could co-host, and you're like, "Oh, I wasn't sure if you'd want me to." And I was like, "It's it's it's Gary, of course we want." <laughs> you know, I've just been losing episodes, and you and Stephanie have got a good thing going. So I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to put our male vibe all over it. So. <laughs> Well, you put uh, you put up uh, some links earlier for people to check out uh, related to tonight's show. Yeah, because um, you know, we had uh, posted something earlier, and I just kind of re- reposted it for people. It actually clicks links over to mine, uh, to my blog, but it's so all the just, you're, you're using us for, You're using us for clicks is what you're saying. Shamelessly <laughs> using you for clicks. Um, it's all the R. Gary Patterson episodes, including the Tim Weisberg interview uh, on the Beatles anniversary. Um, as well as a few other episodes we've done about uh, weird rock and roll connections. So just check the Facebook feed on the Spooky South Coast, and you'll see, like, the link to that. Well, as I mentioned, you know, joining us tonight as our guest is the one, the only, R. Gary Patterson. And if you want to check out some of his work, I highly recommend picking up his books. You can get The The Walrus Was Paul, The Great Beetle Death Clues, uh, and you can also get Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. And, And, Gary, I know that you've been working on a number of different projects, uh, what, have, what have you been working on lately? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I have a friend, his name is Richard Serrett. Mm-hmm. You may know, who does uh, weekends on Coast to Coast. I've been known to do Coast to Coast several times. And uh, right now we're thinking about putting together our own uh, syndicated radio show Excellent. so we can do, do this a lot more. And uh, I'm looking for a station in Knoxville that I can use as a as a home station because i hate to drive to nashville to do it but we could do that I, i'm doing that I, i'm working on a couple of television things i i've got one that we're working on it's going to have to do with a lot more with rock and roll maybe some of the strange and unexplained with it and i'm working on another book so I always always stay busy and i'm always looking for great stories and uh I guess it's just the way I look at it, because when I write, I'm not really interested in writing a, a book of chapters of biographies and, you know, like obituaries. <laughs> I'm not into that at all. Give me the twilight zone. You know, give me something that when I read it, I'm sort of, oh, my gosh, how strange is that? You know, that's, that's what I'm into. And I Did have he- to tell you that in my new book that I'm working on, I've got some stories that are just really, really, I mean, incredibly spooky. So when I get it done, we'll have to do this again. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> does, the, uh, does the new generation have that, Gary? I mean, uh, is there a mythology? I think we've talked about this with some other guests. Like, is there, um, is that there, is there a same kind of mystique, that same kind of mystery behind them that you're getting... Uh, news stories, or you're just getting a kind of uh, stories about the old, uh, the old uh, brigade that uh, have yet to come out. Well, I'll tell you, it takes a while to be a legend, and you know, there's there's a lot of stories that have 
strange inferences, but, you know, when you take something that, whether it's bad luck or a curse or whatever like that, whatever you want to call it, sometimes it keeps on giving. Like, you take Buddy Holly. Now, we talked about this a little earlier tonight, but I read an interview in Rolling Stone magazine that something like 50% of college freshmen had never heard of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. All right? To me, that's kind of kind of spooky. But if you also, if you put Buddy Holly's name out there, then uh, you would have to be, <laughs> you know, you'd, I'd be surprised if 30% of college freshmen had heard of Buddy Holly. And by the way, I'm uh, a consultant on a Buddy Holly documentary that's being filmed right now, too. So, I mean, I'd, I didn't grow up with Buddy Holly. I would go to a book, uh, well, a record store when those things existed. And I saw this guy who was kind of skinny with these real heavy black frames, and I thought, this guy can't be cool. Give me something else. And I had no idea he wrote the songs that he had written, so I sort of was a late blossom to Buddy Holly. But I still understand greatness, and I understand the influences, especially with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the British Invasion. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to take a new group that comes out. It's kind of like, Who's going to be bigger than the Beatles or who has a story that lasts? I mean, there's some new artists that have crossed the line that I'm writing about. And sometimes, I mean, I can go all the way back to Bessie Smith, who very few people have heard of. But to me, when you talk about Highway 61 or Robert Johnson, the crossroads, 3961, then, you know, Bessie Smith died on that road. There's a lot of strange things that happened in Clarksdale, Mississippi, to a lot of R&B artists. Mm-hmm. And why did Bob Dylan call his album Highway 61 Revisited? You know, so there's a lot of good questions you can go in. To me, I usually start a foundation. I start like a history book. You usually start at the beginning, and you work your way up. So right now, I'm working my way up. And we do have some new artists that's going to make the cut in the new one, but, you know, it still has some some fascinating stories. And I don't think I'm going to do an Amy Winehouse thing on it because I really, we're going to let the 27 Club rest for a while, but I always find there's strange things. Like Jimi Hendrix has been something that sort of appealed to me recently, and uh, I had an interview that I put on tape with James Tabby Wright, who was, probably one of the assistant managers under Mike Jeffrey. And on this interview, he talks about how Jimi Hendrix was murdered. Really? Oh, yeah. Because the the common story is that he choked to death on his own vomit, right? That's what you hear. But here's what you probably haven't heard. No one interviewed the ambulance drivers. No one interviewed the doctor at the hospital where he came in. A lot of the things we were told that happened that day didn't happen. And it was up to Kathy Atchingham, who was Jimi Hendrix's first girlfriend in London, who he wrote The Wind Cries Mary for. She was the one who went out and brought up all this new information. Now, to me, which always seemed odd, was that when you read the coroner's report, they talk about Hendrix had like a bottle of wine 
in his hair. And when they did the toxicology report, the alcohol level in his bloodstream was like two beers. Hmm. But wine was oozing out of his mouth, which means his lungs were filled with wine. So did he asphyxiate? And those nine sleeping pills that he took. Well, according to Tevi Wright, Hendricks was murdered because he was leaving Mike Jeffrey. Mike Jeffrey had borrowed, I think, $2 million or a $1 million from the mob to build Electric Ladyland Studios. And if Hendricks had left him, he would owe a great deal of money and probably not be around much longer. Jimi Hendrix had a $2 million life insurance policy. Wow. Now, when the ambulance got to the flat, the only person there was Jimi Hendrix, who they said was already dead. Monica Daneman, the one who tells the story about fixing Jimi Hendrix a tuna fish sandwich, which Hendrix hated tuna fish, and would never eat it, but she said that she'd fixed him the sandwich and that uh, he was fine when she got up to buy a pack of cigarettes. Well, that can't be true. The door was unlocked. It was open. The ambulance comes in. They take him. He's already DOA. They take him to the hospital. And I was told, and like I said, it's on tape, that the sleeping pills stop the gagging reflex and that three men came up carrying bottles of wine and essentially Hendrix was waterboarded. Hmm. They held him down and poured bottles of wine down his throat directly into his lungs. Now, if you look at the toxicology report, he had such a small amount of alcohol in his bloodstream, not enough to be oozing from his mouth, implies that he was dead before the alcohol could enter the bloodstream. So you have that story. Also, he told me that at Electric Ladyland Studios, Mike Jeffrey was there, and that Monica Daneman and he were talking, and he heard Mike Jeffrey say, Well done, darling. Here's your money. Now, whatever that means, I know that the night Hendricks died, he visited his longtime girlfriend, Devin Wilson, who he wrote Dolly Dagger for. He spent some time at her apartment. Monica Daneman drove her car to pick him up, blowing the horn, embarrassing him, so he went out and got in the car. It was it a lover's feud, you know? And I know that shortly after Hendricks' funeral in Seattle, Devin Wilson takes a swan dive off the Hotel Chelsea. And then a few years later, Monica Daneman takes a hose, puts it on her muffler in her Mercedes, takes it in through the side window, and asphyxiates herself on carbon monoxide poisoning. So you have a lot of people who had tragic deaths. Mike Jeffrey. All right, Mike Jeffrey was a member of MI6. That's a James Bond group, right? Right. And he was a master of explosives, and he used to terrify people. Matter of fact, when Hendricks was going into Toronto, they found heroin in his suitcase. And Hendricks was convinced that Jeffrey had put the heroin there just to show Hendricks that he could get him anytime he wanted. 
a few weeks before Hendrix died, he'd been kidnapped, tied up, and put in a garage, and Jeffrey saved him. Or did Jeffrey have him kidnapped and then show him, you know, that he could save him how much trouble he was under? But, you know, when you take a look at all that, Mike Jeffrey was brought back from Spain to do an inquest in England, and on the way back in his plane, the plane blew up, killing everybody on board, and the only thing they found of Mike Jeffrey was a wristwatch. And, I mean, you take a look at all this, it's rather bizarre, isn't it? I mean, and it's it doesn't just stop with, you know, if you want to talk about members of the 27 Club being part of this too, but it doesn't just stop with Hendrix either. I mean, there's been a lot of information that's come out over the last couple of years of people looking into the theory that Kurt Cobain didn't commit suicide, that he was actually murdered. You know, I've always had theories on that as well, because I have a friend whose name is Ian Halperin who wrote Who Killed Kurt Cobain, Mm -hmm. if you've read it. And we did a couple of radio shows together, and he was always convinced that Cobain was murdered. And, I mean, the thing that gets me is if a guy was going to commit suicide and he took enough heroin to kill himself in minutes, why would he take the heroin and then take a shotgun and put it in his mouth and shoot himself? And the other thing is about the shotgun, uh, normally when people commit suicide with a shotgun, they usually use their toe to pull the trigger. He had his shoes on. His arms are short. And the strangest thing was there were no fingerprints on the shotgun. You can't kill yourself and wipe the fingerprints off. And one thing that they haven't brought up was that his credit card was taken and was being used until they announced finding his body, and then the credit card was not used anymore. Now, what makes it even more interesting is I did a TV series with VH1 called VH1 Confidential. You could probably go to YouTube and find it. And there were things that could not be brought up on that television show. Wait, things related to this case that you couldn't talk about? Things that they would not let us talk about. That VH1 was keeping you from saying? Well, when you go to Hollywood and you work with VH1, you go into this one building. One floor is VH1. Another floor is MTV. Mm-hmm. And I think CMT or one of the country channels they do is on another. Well, each of those networks has their own band. Like, for instance, VH1 has a group of bands that they promote. MTV had some when they used to do rock and roll that they would promote. And it had to do with the catalog and who on the rise. So I'll leave that to your imagination. Hmm. But well, still, for you can the record, you cannot find controversy on YouTube. <laughs> VH1 Confidential. Yes, you cannot okay. find it on, on YouTube. You're kidding me. Because I've, I've been looking for it for years. I think I even contacted you and asked you, like, do you just have it on, on tape somewhere? Because some of the stuff that you covered there, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, the episode that you guys did on... Um, on uh, Bob Marley and the controversy about oh, him yeah. potentially having been assassinated, and and it's it's not out there. Now that's odd because I saw an episode on YouTube a week ago, 
because I was sending it in, and I thought, let me check okay. this. Now, you know. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's recent. Recently, they've put it up there, but I've, I was search, I've been searching for years for oh, it. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. And a lot of shows I used to do with uh, Coast to Coast used to be on YouTube, like the one I did with The Doors. And I got Robbie Krieger and Ray Manzarek to come on. And we did a whole night on right. The Doors. And that was a really great show. And it used to be on YouTube, and they were made to take it down. So you know how the copyright laws are. But every now and then, if you keep looking, you can find it. We leave all of ours up for free for everybody to download whenever they want to. So, you know, just so everybody knows, Spooky South Coast, all the previous R. Gary Patterson episodes are right there for you. But uh, one of That's the... what we like. <laughs> VH1 Confidential is now up. All right. For the record. But so you can go in there and, and get it. Watch them quickly because, you know, Viacom might pull them down again. <laughs> the And that's the thing. Viacom like, owns the world. I've, yeah, I've seen some of the TV shows that I've worked on. I've gone to try to, like, pull or, like, you know, if they do something like on Lizzie Borden and we go to film there, I've tried to pull clips off of it. And it's always, like, now it's they're pulling it all down and putting it on their apps. And so people are just kind of uploading, like, them recording it off their TV and, and, and putting it up on YouTube. So... People are finding ways around those copyright laws, but yeah. one of the one of the interesting things about that Kurt Cobain case, though, is that uh, one of the theories, and and I don't know how much you've explored this, Gary, but one of the theories is that it was actually Courtney Love that was behind it because it makes sense on the surface when you think about it because her career is launched by the fact that her husband is dead, and and in the first song, the first video that comes out from the Live Through This album, which you know the most of that album was written by Kurt. But the first song that comes out is right. Doll Parts, and, and she becomes, you know, the sentimental favorite that propels this album into into huge status. And then the second album comes out, and it's nowhere near as good because it didn't have Kurt's hand in it. Well, think of this. If the rumor was that Kurt and Courtney were getting a divorce, and in the divorce settlement, if a widow received a payment, say, of $100,000, $200,000, maybe a million. What would it be better to have, a lump sum or royalties eternal? Right. Every time a Nirvana song is played on the radio, a check comes in. Now, here's your conspiracy theory. One television network played a heck of a lot of Nirvana videos. <laughs> that is true. And, you know, sometimes you have to play nice. And some things you have to leave out. And if, so, if we really started to dig into Kurt versus the establishment and some of the things that he was threatening to do at the time then, you know, you can kind of understand why he had a target on his back because here's a guy who wanted to, he basically wanted to pull himself away from the spotlight. And I'm not sure the exact timing, but I think by this point, Pearl Jam had already done the same thing. Pearl Jam had already said, we're done with music videos. We're not making any more of these things. And so right. you're going to have two of the biggest, and Kurt was is is not on board with being able to put out more videos for uh, the In Utero album. So now you've got two of your biggest draws in music saying, we don't want to play ball with MTV anymore. And you're right. You know, that's that's the thing. And, uh, you know, just there's a lot of money in royalties. 
especially artists and, you know, very popular recording artists. And then what happens when an artist dies? What's really strange, and I guess it goes all the way back to the great first rock and roll fatality. A lot of people think it was Buddy Holly in the plane crash, but it goes back further to a guy whose name was James Alexander, whose name was Johnny Ace. Now, the reason he changed his name to Johnny Ace was that his father was a minister. He lived in Memphis, and they had a piano at their home. And while they were home, when Johnny Alexander played the piano, he played a lot of religious music. And when his father left, he went straight into R&B. So when he got a record deal, he changed his name to Johnny Ace as not to father's father or disrespect him. But one night, he'd been drinking, and it was, I think, Christmas night in Houston, Texas with Big Mama Thornton, and he had a gun. And he carried this pistol with him everywhere he went. And he had this penchant for shooting at road signs as he drove down the road. But he had his girlfriend with him, and he had one of her friends. And as he was walking behind the stage, he took the gun, he pulled the hammer back and put it next to his girlfriend's head and pulled the trigger. Went click. Then he takes the gun and he points it at his girlfriend's friend's head, pulls the trigger, again, click. Big Mama Thornton reaches over, grabs the gun, says, give me this. She gets it away from him, and then he grabs it back and says, look, it's not loaded. And he puts it to his head, pulls the trigger, and books his ticket to rock and roll heaven. Mm. And a lot of people said, well, you know, he committed suicide. Well, or he was playing Russian roulette. It was accidental. But what wasn't accidental was how much money Johnny Ace's record company made when they came out with the late, great Johnny Ace for a guy who had two songs. And one of them was called Pledging My Love. So... Dead rock stars can be worth a lot of money. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, Tupac has recorded more albums since he died. <laughs> Some of them have this penchant of creating better songs after they die. You know, really. I know there was a psychic in Germany who said that Elvis Presley had contacted him and had written all these new songs in the afterlife, and he wanted the German psychic to have a record deal so he could sing Elvis's new songs. Well, what was interesting is Elvis must have learned to write songs in the afterlife because he'd never written one song in his life. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, I guess you gain some perspective when you, you know, when you go to the other side. You know, maybe it makes you a little bit of a better writer. <laughs> it does. It gives you a whole different perspective, doesn't it? So is there, uh, when when we're talking about some of these older cases, you know, these, these things that kind of predate uh, when we start assigning curses to this when we started assign- you know, because I think the stories really started to get sexy when you got to the Beatles death clues and when you started to get to that era of when there was a bit of the occult attached to a lot of this stuff and we had a guest on uh, a while back here on Spooky South Coast I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work his name's George Case and he wrote a book called Here's to My Sweet Satan and he looked at the occult influence in pop culture and I think it was when people started to pay attention to some of that darker side of things that they allow the darker side mm-hmm. to seep into pop culture and is i think people will look at rock stars who who die young or who die mysteriously and say you're stepping into that world you're allowing that into your life you're allowing that into your creative 
vision, and that's going to end up costing you in the end. And it, do you think that that's kind of one of the tie-ins that we're seeing with some of these deaths? It's sort of like a Faustian, you know, like right. the tragical history of Dr. Faustus or, uh, you know, Goethe's Faust, the idea that what forces you play with have consequences. And if you go back to 1967, when the Beatles came out with Sgt. Pepper's, if you look on the top row on the left-hand side, you see Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they considered him this magician, this figure. And a lot of people even knew him, thought he was a charlatan, but the whole idea was, in 67, people that period were looking for answers. And, you know, you had more of an anti-religious vibe that was going on and more interest in Far Eastern religions. You can look at the Beatles on that. And if you went down Carnaby Street, you could see Graham Bond wearing a wizard's outfit who claimed to be the illegitimate son of Aleister Crowley. And people were obsessed with the stories. That's what the, That's why the Rolling Stones got so deep into the occult. And, you know, the Beatles were just interested in the Crowley thing. I think I read that McCartney was the one who suggested they put Crowley on the cover. But you did have interest. And, of course, when Jimmy Page came along and started his Equinox, which was an occult bookstore, and started collecting a lot of Crowley uh, memorabilia, and then you had the Zeppelin curse, and you had... The house, Boleskin, where Jimmy Page bought it, which, by the way, is one of the episodes on VH1 Confidential, if you get a chance to see it. And it shows a lot about that. So when you take a look at that, one of the funny things is I was out in Los Angeles recording the segment on Jimmy Page, and you have this occult filmmaker. His name is Kenneth Anger. And Kenneth Anger is the one who put the curse on Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin because Page didn't complete the musical score for his film called Lucifer Rising. So VH1 wanted me to talk about Kenneth Hanger. I might be a little superstitious at times, and I said, I don't know if I want to talk about Kenneth Hanger. Oh, come on, it's in your book. Talk about him. Talk about him. I said, okay. And then all at once, this is about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I said, Kenneth Hanger... And as soon as I said the name, this dog started howling outside. It's kind of unnerving. And I looked at the director. She looked at me. I looked at the guy doing the camera and the sound. We just looked at each other for a second. There was a pause. She said, okay, let's change the topic because it did seem strange. Now, I know you guys are really into paranormal investigations and I, I'm just going to have to come up to Massachusetts and hang out sometime you'll have to take me and show me some stuff but let me tell you a good story and when I went to the crossroads that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil I went to a party with several of my fraternity brothers and their wives girlfriends we drove down to Clarksdale found the crossroads we had our picture made standing in the cemetery that Robert Johnson had claimed 
the devil taught him to play the guitar at night. Now, we went during the day, early. But we had a number of pictures made of the group with the crossroads over our shoulder. They were made in digital cameras, made with regular cameras. Not one photo came out. Wow. <laughs> oh, it gets better. As we were walking around the cemetery that was, I think it was built in 1850, there was this huge black snake that was coiled around a tombstone. And one of the guy's wives took this stick and started beating that snake with it. And, you know, I looked at her and I said, well, you know, I don't want to get too freaked out here, but, you know, this is a snake in a cemetery that Robert Johnson said the devil appeared and taught him to play the guitar. And devil, snake, you know, you might want to leave that snake alone. And I was kind of kidding. So she does. And as we get ready to leave, Alan, the guy whose house we stayed at, one of my fraternity brothers, he said, Gary, you know what we got to do? And I said, no, uh, what do we got to do? He said, we got to bring some dirt back. So here he and I get down the middle of this crossroads, and we dig up dirt from the center, and we put it in these plastic sandwich bags, put it in the back of the car, go back to his house, which was in Jackson, Tennessee. Now, that was a Saturday. Sunday morning, we get up to go home. We all say goodbye, and we head, well, I head back to Nashville. And the girl I was with is with me, and we switched cars. I, I left my car and in Cookville, and we were going to pick it up because she lived in Chattanooga. And on our way to Nashville, I called my attorney, and two other friends, Jamie Eldacre, who was there at Clapton's drummer, and Leo Lyons, who played bass in 10 years after, to have dinner with me. And we go into Nashville, and we're sitting there, and I say, you know what, I got in my car. I said, I've got dirt from the crossroads. You want me to go get it? And Jamie Eldacre looks at me and says, uh-uh, don't bring that in here. <laughs> he said, that's too much mojo. Because Eric Clapton would not touch Muddy Waters' guitar. Because he said, oh, it's too much mojo. Mm. So I knew this was kind of interesting. Now, Leo Lyons, he said, yeah, bring it in. Let me see it. So we had some fun. I get my car. I go home. I didn't have my cell phone. Home. But when I get home, my phone is literally blowing up. And I find that the girl who had the stick that was beating the snake, when she got home, she was rushed to the hospital with a brain aneurysm. Oh, whoa. The guy who dug the dirt with me, Alan, 15 minutes after we left his home, had a heart attack, was intensive care. And the girl who went with me, strange things were happening in her house. Her alarm system was going off, motion detectors, but there wasn't anything there. The police kept coming. She was terrified that something had followed her back. Now, what makes it worse is that when I went to get the dirt out of my car, I realized I'd left it with her. So the next morning, she calls me at, from work, and she says, the police have been here all day. I know it's that dirt. And I said, well, here's what you do. You take that dirt, 
and you throw it in the river. So she does. And it's a heavy rain that night, but she throws it in the river. And everything seemed to be calm. Well, they had a birthday party for me about, oh, three weeks later. And a lot of them came up to my party, especially Alan. He had recovered, so his heart attack, you know, was something he was able to beat. And I noticed they brought me a gift. And I saw this strangely wrapped gift, and when I opened it, there was this oblong bottle. It looked like something from the 1930s, like you'd find in a drugstore. Mm-hmm. had a cork stopper. And when I looked at it, at the very bottom was about four tablespoons of dirt. Oh, no with a little plaque that said the crossroads. Now, I have that on my desk. And every every now and then when I'm riding, I kind of glance over at it. Now, I don't see any blue glow. But I think what happened, the next year I was in Rome, and I was at the Vatican, and I decided, hmm, why not bring back a souvenir? So I bought a crucifix. I'm not Catholic, but I thought it looked cool, so I bought it. And when I was going through the nun at the cash register in the bookstore, she said, would you like the Holy Father to bless this for you? I said, who? She said, the Holy Father, the Pope. The Pope will bless my crucifix that I spent five bucks on. Oh, yes. No charge. So I said, Sure. So I left my crucifix. The guy, one of the my friends who was with me, said, you think his Holy Father would bless these golf balls for me? <laughs> he said, of course. Now, I never asked him if they hit the water and walked across the water and went automatically in hole-in-ones. But after we got back from dinner that night, I looked on my doorknob of the hotel room, and there was my crucifix. So when I got home, the dirt is on the left side, and the crucifix is on the right. So I guess they balanced themselves out. Now, my former girlfriend, who had the terror of the dirt, I talked to her not too long ago, and she said that she cannot escape Robert Johnson, that she'd gone into the bathroom of this barbecue place in Chattanooga. When she shut the door, there was a life-size picture of Robert Johnson (laughs) staring at her. So I guess sometimes uh, the shock stays with you. But that is a true story, and whether it was all coincidence, I don't know. But nothing happened to me. And maybe it's because I have the proper respect for urban legends. Well, I mean, it could also be the fact that, you know, you're the chronicler of this. So you need to have, in order for these stories to be told, there needs to be somebody that is still around to tell them. And that's, you know, that's pretty much the the way that a lot of these legends come about is because there has to be somebody there that that experienced it that can go on and tell the story that's why you know whenever you see these movies the bad guy always spares one person to go and tell the story to everybody else (laughs) yeah and you also need that person who's seen the connections and can kind of formulate it and actually like give it some kind of context as opposed to just being a storyteller which which uh which gary does very well well you know i think i've never looked at it that way but i think there could be something to it i know that when I was watching Supernatural, uh, they start having these crossroad demons now. And I kept saying, I wonder if these guys read my book. Because <laughs> I really go into it, 
you know, about the African god Legba at the crossroads and all that. But all of it's, I mean, there's just some really interesting stories. And the way my mind picks up on things, you know, we were talking about Hendrix earlier. Look at Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, I remember seeing him, and he would do this section where he would talk, and he, he had this line where he says, I don't know why I'm here, and they took Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, because he did a really couple of great covers of Hendrix songs, but I'd heard that his last performance, he started really getting freaked out about this Hendrix comparison, and one of the fans had actually painted a picture of Jimi Hendrix and tried to give it to him, and he wouldn't take it. And the, the last performance he did, he was on fire. I mean, he was playing. Clapton was with him. And he just let Stevie Ray keep playing and playing. The last song he played, Sweet Home Chicago. You know who wrote that song? Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson. And then, in Rock and Roll Deja Vu, he, his brother Jimmy, Jimmy's wife Connie, are going to take a helicopter back to Chicago and as they make their way to the helicopter, they find out there's only one seat left. So Stevie Ray asked his brother, he said, do you mind if I have this seat? I'm just so tired. Will you guys drive back? And they agree to let him go. That kind of reminds me of a infamous coin toss for the Beechcraft <laughs> Bonanza, you know? And now, the helicopter do, you know, do you know anything? I'm sorry, Gary. Do you know anything about the story, like, about... Oh, Losing a little bit. There was another connection with Hendrix. What, you're losing me? Yeah, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Yeah, uh, maybe two months mm-hmm. earlier, he had lost he had lost a whole bunch of his guitars when an awning had fallen on it or something had fallen on it. But there was another Hendrix connection with that. Do you, do you know anything about that? About Hendrix losing some of his guitars? No, Stevie Ray Vaughan, about two months before he oh. died. Um, there was another... There was, I'm, trying to remember it. I, I can't remember why I had read it before, but there was another Hendrix connection and um, he had done something very, very similar to that or there was something with Jimi Hendrix and then both of his, like a, something had fallen and crushed uh, like almost all of his guitars. Like, you know, those signature, you know, uh, SRV guitars that he had. Do you remember yeah, that story I, at all? Do you know anything about that? I remember like the guitars disappeared right before. Couldn't find them. Uh, you know what? The the other strange similarity is with Hendrix and Steve Ray Vaughan is Eric Clapton. Because right, the and then a whole bunch died. of He was supposed to meet Clapton for a jam session with Sly and the Family Stone. And the night of the death, Clapton had bought a gift for Jimi Hendrix. It was a left-handed Stratocaster. And they see each other at this performance. But Hendrix didn't show, and when Clapton found out the next day that Hendrix has died, I saw this video, this film, that was made with Clapton telling the story. And at the end, he says, I don't know why Jimmy left me. And he said, because he left me here. He said, he left me here with his left-handed guitar. And then tears start running from his eyes. Well, Eric Clapton was the last play with Stevie Ray Vaughan that night. Well, so I was going to ask you, there, there seems that. to be so much about Clapton. Like, why, why is, 
I mean, Clapton, you know, uh, covered crossroads. Clapton's involved in so much of this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, why is, and I, as a matter of fact, I used to teach an R. Gary Patterson lesson in class um, <laughs> from some of your teachings and some of the things from your books, and I would, and we would talk about all these connections, and, and even the kids would say, well, yeah, but what about Clapton? Like, he keeps mentioning all this, and then Clapton was there, and then Clapton, well, why does nothing bad happen to him? And I'm like, well, you know, his, his kid died, except for, and, and Tim and I were talking about this earlier, like, well, except for he got his probably biggest hit based on a song he wrote about that incident. So what is up with the Clapton connection, and why does he seem to be spared from all this? You know, that's interesting. In your opinion. I mean, look at yeah. Derek and the Dominoes. You know, wasn't that a really bad luck band? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you had, uh, <laughs> you had you, Dwayne yeah, Allman. Dwayne Allman was in it, yep. Yeah, and then you had uh, Carl Radel. And you had Jim Gordon. I think the only one that was untouched was Bobby Whitlock. But, you know, Jim Gordon, my gosh. Paranoid schizophrenic. I guess I'll tell you some stuff that very few people know. Because that's how we lock it, right, guys? Oh, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Do you know why Jim Gordon was, well, do you know why Eric Clapton left the Domino's? Because there was an argument between Jim Gordon at the very beginning of Bell Bottom Blues. And Jim Gordon started sinking deeper, deeper into paranoid schizophrenia. And in his mind, his mother was denying him food. She denied him the ability to play the drums. So to stop the voices in his head, he knocks on his mother's door when she answers it. He beats her to death with a hammer. And then he goes after his sister. His sister, she's, you know, she was able to escape. And today, Jim Gordon is in a prison for the mentally insane in California. He's on his medication, which has helped. And I guess a trivia question, who was the only person ever convicted of murder to ever win a Grammy? And the answer is Jim Gordon, because he composed the piano part at the end of Layla. Mm. And when we were doing the VH1 thing, the VH1 was saying, well, you know, Jim Gordon's dead. I said, I don't think he's dead. I said, what you need to do is you need to make sure you have your facts straight. And then they found out, you know, yeah, he's not dead. He's still, still in prison. But, I mean, those are tragic stories. You know, and Carl Radle's death is mysterious, the bass player. And, of course, Dwayne Allman. And here's a good thing about the Almonds, because I know Chris was talking to me about it. And I know we always tell the story about the drug overdose in Nashville, where he'd taken too much opium, and his fingertips had turned blue, and they rushed him to the hospital. And the doctor told him that there was really no hope that he was too far gone. And Barry Oakley runs out to the parking lot, falls on his knees, and he says, God, just give him one more year to live, just one more year, and pleaded. About 20 minutes later, the doctor comes out and says, guys, I've never seen anything like it. He's going to make it. And he did. But one year to the day, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. Exactly one year to the day. 
And Barry Oakley died one year and 13 days later, a few hundred feet from the intersection. Now, here's the thing that was a puzzling thing for me. Dwayne Allman wasn't buried until Barry Oakley died. His body was kept in storage for a year and 13 days, like he was waiting on it. And they were both buried together at Rose Hill Cemetery, which goes to our graveyard. Is there a reason why he was not Do you know buried? that I had asked and nobody wanted to talk about it? Now I know the answer. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I like about you guys. You're always ready. <laughs> well, it appears that when he was killed at the accident, I think it was Barry Oakley's wife and the girl that Dwayne was dating, whose name was Dixie, were driving behind him. And when Dwayne hit the truck, his motorcycle flew up in the air, hit him, crushed most of his organs. And the girl he was with goes running up to the truck driver saying, you've killed my husband. She wasn't his wife that she was a common-law wife. So they have his funeral, and the Almond Brothers set up. They play, you know, some very... They play the songs for him. Uh, I know that Dickie Betts played his Les Paul for him. And what happened was that Dwayne had a daughter and a previous marriage. And his other wife's name, or his wife's name, was Donna. So there was a huge court case. It turns out that the girl who was behind him when he was killed, Dixie, had claimed to be his wife, but she was already married to some other guy. Hmm. So what happened, they had to wait till a claim was made, because it was a lawsuit, and Donna and their daughter comes to Macon, Georgia, and when she gets there, after the suit's determined, because his daughter, of course, was his heir. Money goes to her to support her. And then his ex-wife, Donna, is the one who chooses the grave. But nobody was in a hurry to bury him, you know, which to me was just really strange. That's a strange story. And I know that if you go to Roseville Cemetery today, I've heard stories that his sister, Barry Oakley's sister, and her husband closely guard that grave because a lot of people really don't have proper respect. Like they'll go out and try to do etchings of the tombstones, like with blue crayons, and it really destroys the marble. Or people want to take souvenirs, like they'll chip off uh, some of the marble. They took these two small angels and all that. So it seems like even when you're famous, you know, people want souvenirs. They want a piece of it. When uh, probably the most bizarre story of a, of a graveyard in rock and roll was about 20 years after the plane crash in which Ronnie Van Zant was killed, someone broke into his grave in Jacksonville, Florida, along with Steve Gaines. And Steve had been cremated along with his sister, Cassie, and they had punctured the bag, and some of the ashes remains had fallen out. They had pulled Ronnie Van Zant's 
coffin from his uh, crypt, but they weren't able to open it. So Judy Van Zandt decided that to make sure this wouldn't happen, that she would put the coffin under so many feet of concrete to make sure it wouldn't happen again. So here's your trivia question. According to the legend, what were they after? The grave robbers. And the answer was that when Ronnie Van Zandt died, he was buried wearing his Texas hat or hat, a fishing pole, and barefoot. But there was a bet. Was he buried wearing his famous black Neil Young T-shirt? And the legend is that whoever tried to open the coffin was trying to see if he was buried with that T-shirt. Isn't that bizarre? Uh, it's very strange. Well, and uh, that was Jacksonville. I was going to say, you know, we're we're just about out of time, and I I, I hate how the time flies by when we have you on, Gary. We, <laughs> I hope that you can make that radio show happen with uh, with Richard Serrett so that we can just hear this kind of stuff all the time. It's uh, it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, well, sorry, go ahead. Oh, we, I've I've got we've got many more stories, and I love doing shows with you guys. I mean, I consider you guys two of my good friends, and you know, we just need to do it some more. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what I love about it too is that you know when when you are giving this story and you're sharing this information with people, like you have to understand, Gary's not a guy who's just going on Google and looking into these stories and finding out more about. It. He's talking to the people that were involved in this. He's friends with the people who were involved in these stories and and who were around this. And and there's no greater wealth of of knowledge when it comes to this kind of stuff. It's one of my favorite topics that we cover. And I just wanted to put out one last push for everybody to pick up your books. And, uh, and and follow along with how can people follow along with you on online and on social media? Well, uh, I do have a web page. I need to hit it more often. It's rgarypatterson.com. If you want to be a friend with me, uh, look me up on Facebook. Still under rgarypatterson.com. Uh, Chris and I are friends, and uh, Tim and I too. I think we're all friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm always glad to. To have new stories, always glad to meet new people, and uh, usually I post a few things about what I'm going to be doing. I also I'm doing some live shows with George Nori. It's called George Nori and Friends. I've done one in Vancouver, two in Toronto, and I did one in St. Louis last summer. And uh, so I understand I'm supposed to do a couple of more. So. If you're in one of the areas, come over and meet me, hang out. We'd have fun. And maybe someday I can come up to Massachusetts and uh, we can do a convention and talk. Oh, I really hope so. I mean, every time we talk about putting on a convention, you know, we've said for a number of years, like, let's put on our own, you know, pop culture convention or paranormal convention or whatever. I always say, you know, my my first guest, we got to have our Gary Patterson come up because after that. love it. And what what I think too is uh you know what what I think people will be impressed is when they follow along with your work and they follow you know it's it's one thing to just put out a story and and put out a book of stories and to have them exist out there but you follow up on them you're always updating things like you said always finding new things so absolutely 100% follow Gary and all of his work I'm sorry that we only have a minute left oh come on <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we will definitely do this again Gary thank you so much for joining us 
Hey, thank you, guys. Always glad to. And uh, and we definitely will not take so long to talk again, you and I. So good. All right. Thank you, and have a That's great night. We'll, we'll we'll keep you up too, to date guys. with everything. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Can Chris? Like, we gotta. We just gotta start calling him the legendary R. Gary Patterson. The legendary R. Gary Patterson. I could I could really seriously just listen to him for like another three hours. And some of these stories I've heard multiple times, and I don't care. Right. It's and and, and he he said that we're his friends, so that we can carry that around forever. <laughs> and not just Facebook friends. He said like you guys are my friends, and then he started talking about the. The Facebook friend part. So, like, listen, yeah, we've, we're been, there. we've been doing this for a long time. We don't geek out over a lot of these people that we talk to. We geek out over talking to Gary. Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for the uh, really quick. Who's on next week? Uh, I believe next week is the Outlander, Heidi Hollis. All right. So stay spooktacular.